I'm going to read uh, from, from chapter 1, 1 to, uh, to chapter 2, 3 for the, the first week of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruits bearing, fruit, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its own kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation. Plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the light, the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth in the expanse of the heavens. So God created the sea creature, the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and, said, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its, with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. 
Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we consider this passage of Scripture, O oh Lord, the testimony of your work in creation, Lord, we bow before your presence, for you are not only the creator of, of planets and stars, not only the, the creator of birds and fish and, and animals, but Lord, you are our creator. Lord, you created us. Lord, you are the sovereign ruler over all of creation, including us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we consider this passage of Scripture, Lord, that we would submit to what you would say to us by your Spirit this morning. Lord, I pray that that you would help us as we see these things to worship you for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many people here have, have lived in Kelowna for, for more than 10 years? So probably maybe a little less than half. I wonder if, if you've been here for, for any length of time, how often you stop and look around at how beautiful Kelowna is. How long has it been since you stopped and, and looked at the mountains? God made those. Or, or this this 60-mile-long lake. How long have you stopped and looked at that? God made that. I've been able to travel to many parts of the world, and, and I've seen very few places that are as beautiful as Kelowna, as our little valley. But every part of the world has a beauty in it, a beauty that was given to it by the creator of the world. As Donald Gray Barnhouse says that, that everything in the world that God has made has its perfect order, that, that God does not allow the, the colors on this, this painting that he's made, he doesn't let the colors bleed together. Everything has an order that has been given to it by God. This morning, as we continue our look at the first week ever, the work, the week in which God created the heavens and the earth. Last week, we, we looked at the first three days, and, and we, we saw that, we saw that the, what God had done in, in those first three days of creation, we, we saw that, that the Genesis account of creation really provides a response to the, the creation mythologies of the pagan nations that were around Israel. We, we dealt a little bit with the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation myth, and with, with its, its bizarre and, and, and really vile imagery. We saw how, how, how different that creation account is from what we read in God's word in, in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, while I, I don't think, as I said last week, while I don't think Moses' main purpose was to challenge those pagan mythologies, by exalting the God of creation, 
he necessarily refutes those pagan mythologies. And not just those ancient pagan mythologies, but also the pagan mythology of evolution. So it's, it's necessary, the, 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 this creation account by necessity refutes the, the fact that there are blind genetic processes because behind creation, there is a creator. Who has a read in the word, if we take a, a plain reading of what this text says, a creator who created the world in six literal days and rested on the seventh day. It's vitally important that we understand the foundation of the word of God. And, and again, as I said, this is not the, the main purpose of, of Genesis 1 and 2, but, but if we deny what God's word says, as we look at it with a literal grammatical hermeneutic, historical hermeneutic, if we deny what this says, then we're really, we're really removing the foundation of our faith. Remo removing the foundation of the word of God. And there are major implications to that. Because, the, because this text is inerrant, the, the entire Bible is inerrant. If this is not true, then none of God's word is reliable. But it is true. All of God's word is, is true from, from Genesis to Revelation. We do not need to let so-called science sit in judgment of the word of God, but the word of God sits in judgment of so-called science. Sinclair Ferguson spoke of, of how in creation, what, what the author of Genesis really wants us to do is to look to the creator. He, the author of Genesis wants us to raise our eyes to the fountain and origin of this whole created order and recognize that God brought it into being by a work of infinite divine power out of nothing and simply by his word. And so the author of creation, as the inspired author behind this text, wants us not to focus on creation, but wants us to focus on him, on the almighty creator. So when we look at this passage of the Bible, we see almighty God. And may it cause our hearts to worship him for who he is and for what he is doing. So this morning, we're, we're going to continue our examination of the first week as, as we jump in with the fourth day. It would be helpful if you kept your Bible open here and, and tracked with me as we, as we walk through this, this text from, from, uh, from Genesis 1.14 through to the, the end of, of this chapter. This fourth day is the first Wednesday. And this here it introduces the, the second set of, of three days in it which, which corresponds, as we saw last week, these, this second set corresponds to the first set of, of three days. And this here, the fourth day, corresponds to the first day in which light was created. 
Now, the, the space that is given to this account here and the, the, the repetition reveals that this is, this is a relatively important thing, the, the creation of, of these, these lights in the expanse. In fact, it's, it's really, this description here is really only second in, in relation to the, the, uh, to the sixth day of, of, of space that's given to this account. But again, here we see God acting. God, God creates with merely a word. His word is, is not just any word. His word is, is loaded with sovereign power. God speaks and things happen. When God creates, he simply says, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. And, and, and now what we have is, is rather than that light that we saw on the first day that emanated from God, we see that, the, the, that this job is now given, this task is now given to the, the lights in the expanse. These, these are specific lights. They're, they're given a job. In fact, they're given four jobs. They're told to separate the day from the night. They're given for, for signs and seasons. So the, the reason why we have, that we understand seasons is because of, of the, the, the equinoxes and the solstices of the sun. It's given for days and for years. And, and, and so with days, obviously it's the earth rotation on its axis. And, and with the, the, the one year is the one year of the earth's revolution around the sun. And we see that the fourth job is that they are to give light upon the earth as the, the sun shines brightly during the day and that the moon, not with its own light, but the moon reflects the light of the sun back to earth. God said it and it was so. Now with verse 16, we, we find the repetition. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Notice here that the, these heavenly bodies are not named. The usual Hebrew terms for, for sun and moon aren't used here, but it's rather the greater and the lesser lights. Victor Hamilton, the commentator, su suggests that this is because the names for the sun and moon in Hebrew were similar to those of pagan deities in other Semitic languages. And so there's, there's a differentiation that, that Moses is, is giving here to, to compare what, what, what God has done versus what all the pagan nations are saying that their false gods have done. Th these are not cosmic deities, but light-bearing bodies. The sun and the moon and the stars are not divine. They are created by the Almighty God and they are ruled by the Almighty God. They are given to serve the earth. So contrary to, to pagan mythologies, the, again, the, the sun and the moon and the, and the stars, they, they are lower than, than God. They're not gods in their own right. Just one example, again, the, from the Enuma Elish, where, where the stars are, are given priority here we see instead rather that the sun and the moon are listed first. And, and notice the, the stars, it's almost like an afterthought. The, the, the greater light and the lesser light, sorry, the, the, yeah, the greater light and the lesser light and the stars. Now, if you know anything at all about astronomy, you, you know that each one of those stars is, is, is a sun, and, and some of these suns are, are way bigger than our own sun. In fact, the, the, the largest one is, is, is five billion times the volume of our own sun. 
Our own son is relatively small in comparison. But as we see through the, the rest of this Genesis account, the, the reason why, why the, the, the sun and the moon are given priority is because this is from an earthly perspective. And maybe Joshua could tell you more about, about the influence of these, these other stars and the gravitational pull that they have. They exert an influence on the earth as well, but it, it's, it's negligible compared to the influence that our own sun has on our planet. And so the, the author of, of Genesis here is, is wanting to show us what, what God has done, not just for the, for the universe in general, but specifically for this planet to make it able to support and sustain life. But again, as we saw last week, that these, these roles that these, that these heavenly bodies are, are, are given is temporary. It's temporary. Because in the new heavens and the new earth, the, the, we won't need the, the, the sun and the moon anymore because, because God is going to be the light in the new Jerusalem. So as much as we, as we depend on, on, on our, our own sun at this, at this moment, this points ultimately to God the Son and his light from which we, we gain not just, just the ability to, to live physically, but the ability to live spiritually. When we think about, about all the different heavenly bodies and the, the, our, our own, even in our own solar system and the, the moons that are, are, are traveling, we have one moon, but, but I think it's 13 around Jupiter and, or more, and, and there's, but all the, the movement that's happening in just even in our own solar system let alone the, the fact that, that our own solar system is, is, is swirling in the middle of a galaxy and our galaxies are, are swirling in the middle of the broader universe. Every star and every planet and every moon is placed there by God. And all of them are under the sovereign rule of this God, of our God. Nothing is too great or too small to escape God's providential rule. I've quoted this, this quote many times, but Spurgeon said, I cannot comprehend it. I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. God is almighty and he is over it all. But in the pagan religions, those pagan mythologies, those pagan cosmologies, they actually worshiped the sun and the moon. But in Deuteronomy 17, we see that Israel, as they were, they were tempted to do this, but they were, Israel was directly prohibited from worshiping the sun and the moon. And, and God was so serious about this that offenders were stoned to death. Our God is a jealous God and he has decreed that we will have no other gods before him. Isaiah 40, 25 and 26. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the holy God. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power and not one is missing. 
God has placed every star exactly where he wants it to be and he knows them all by name. He is not only omnipotent, he is also omniscient. He knows all things. But we see not only just the pagan and the pagan religions of, of surrounding Israel in that time, but even today that, that people believe that, that somehow that the, the, the movement of the stars directs our own fate. Astrology. You could pick up your, your local newspaper and, and see that under your astrological sign that the, the, the constellation that you were supposedly born under that is meant to somehow govern what's going to happen to you in your life. It's utter foolishness. But so many in our culture are drawn into this. Maybe, maybe you've even been drawn into this and, and read your, your horoscope. This, this isn't just a game. It's an affront against the almighty God because it's a denial of his sovereign rule. So astrology is a vile practice, but, but astronomy, on the other hand, is another story that, that so, so many who, who, who make their living by, by gazing up at the stars. Have you ever laid back on the grass on a, on a dark night and gazed up at the stars? Well, imagine having the opportunity to, to travel to Australia. You, you, you would see a, a different set of constellations from, from those that you're familiar with here, with Centaurus and, and Scorpio high in the sky. But chief among those constellations is, is Crux, the Southern Cross. This is, this is as prominent in the Southern Hemisphere as the Big Dipper is, in, in, or Ursa Major, in, in our solar system. It's so important. It's been used by, for navigation for centuries. It's on the flags of, of Australia and New Zealand. It'd be a great opportunity to see what, what God did, not just up here, but down there as well. Or as they say, not just, they, they look at us as down there, but that's another story. But, but if you ever had the chance to, to, in Australia, to go to the Outback and, and go to the, the Charleville Cosmos Center and, and to, to look through one of their powerful telescopes where there is no pollution and, and very little ambient light you can look at the craters of the moon so close that you feel like you could touch them. And you could focus in on, on the, the stars of the, of, the, of the Southern Cross. And, and one of the, the prominent, prominent stars find out that it's actually not a star at all. But it's a cluster of stars, of, of over a hundred stars. Notice as the jewel box with, with blue, white stars, but the chief among them are a red supergiant. Now you could, could look at those things and, and just say, wow, that's beautiful. But that's not enough. The, the creation, the enjoyment of the creation is never meant to be an end unto itself, but meant to be a springboard to cause you to worship the creator. As you see things with, with your eyes and, and, and with the, the technological advances, things that we can see that, that Moses never, never saw. You're meant to worship God. 
So astronomy was never meant to be an end unto itself, but to, to inspire worship. In fact, all of the, the chief sciences, that they were, the men who were, were behind these, many of them were, were creationists. Who, when, when they saw the, the creation, they saw the creator and they, they worshiped him. So it's not astronomy for the sake of astronomy, but for the glory of God. And, and as we have an opportunity to, 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 to just skirt around the edges of these things, we too have an opportunity to enter into worship. As we think about the infinite galaxies and, and, uh, and stars and, and each one of them placed there by God, the God who knows each one of them by name and knows each one of us by name. Psalm 8, 3, and 4 was read for us earlier. Verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now we're going to be coming back there again shortly. But here we see from the, the seemingly infinite universe, we see our own finiteness because we see the glory of God in the creation, in his creation. We're humbled. That's the fourth day. The fifth day. Well, the fifth day corresponds with the second day. On the, on the second day, God created the environment and the habitat and the, the expanse that separated the waters uh, above from the waters below. And, and also, um, on, on, well, then you find on, on day five, you find that those, those regions, those, um, the, the aquatic and, the, uh, and the, the air, the expanse, are, are filled with life. The sky is filled with, with flying creatures and the sea is, is filled with swimming creatures. So you're on the fifth day and in verse 22, we see that for the first time in the creation narrative, God speaks to someone. He blesses the creatures of the air and the creatures of the sea with the ability to reproduce. This blessing is given in three ways with the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill. And so this, this blessing of having fruitful offspring is, is really an important concept in Genesis, one that we're going to come back, when we, especially when we look at the patriarchs, one that is going to, we're going to come back to again and again. That this idea of, of having fruitful offspring, of having many children, is, is vitally important to the book of Genesis, to the covenants and the promise within Genesis. This was the first Thursday. God filled the seas and, and lakes and rivers with sharks and salmon and pleosaurs and pike and ichthyosaurs and octopus and crocodiles and crayfish and blue whales and minnows. And he filled the sky with birds and bats and eagles and owls and pterodactyls and parrots and hummingbirds and herons. God made it all in one day. Have you ever gone snorkeling on a, on a coral reef? It's spectacular. But imagine for a moment if you had the opportunity to, to go to Pixie's Pinnacle on the outer Great Barrier Reef. It's only accessible by a liveaboard dive boat. You plunge into the, the crystal clear tropical water and dive down 30 meters to the seabed. And as you slowly circle your way up the, the pinnacle, Branches of staghorn and flat table coral reach towards you. Undulating soft corals of, of every color imaginable flow in the, in the current. Schools of big-eyed trevally circle around you and, and they look at you with their big eyes. 
in perfect synchronicity. They, they swim and they move almost as one. Angelfish and butterfly fish dart around above the coral and, and schools of a fluorescent orange and pink antheus hover there seemingly without moving. God did all of this. Our God did all of this. But again, the, the, the description of creation that we find here in Genesis is diametrically opposed to every pagan creation myth. Again, from the Enuma Elish, we talked about this, the, the, the Marduk was said to have created the earth through the, the, by conquering the, the dragon goddess Tiamat. In Genesis 1, there's not even a hint of any conflict. The almighty God is over it all. The, the sea creatures are created by God. Sea creatures, the, the Hebrew word here possibly refers to a, a crocodile. This is the imagery that, that is then later adopted by the, by the prophets. Using the, using the very, here's where we find the, the Canaanite mythological names represented, but, but, here, but there they describe God's sovereignty over the forces of nature. So in, in Isaiah 27.1, we read, On that day, the Lord with his hard and great strong sword will punish Leviathan. This is a, in, in the, the pagan mythologies, Leviathan was a god. The Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing ser serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent, he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Or Job 26, 12. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab, another pagan deity. Leviathan and Rahab, so greatly feared by the, in the pantheon of pagan religions, are mere sea creatures easily vanquished by our sovereign God. He is over it all. And so the Genesis account proves the lie of the pagan creation mythologies, but it also proves the lie of the modern pagan mythology of evolution. God created them according to their Kinds. Now, as we spoke about last week, when the scriptures use the word kinds, it's, it's much broader than the, the modern concept of species. And changes within kinds are observable, like the changes within the beaks of, of Darwin's Galapagos finches. But again, there's absolutely no evidence in the fossil record that there's something that is partway between a reptile and a bird. There's nothing that, that's partway in between, even though Darwin theorized that the paleontologists would discover a multitude of transitional species. There are none. The animals that are in the air did not evolve the ability to fly. The, the animals that are in the sea did not evolve the ability to swim. They were created that way. Even evolutionist paleontologists admit that in the, fo that in the fossil record, when they, they, can see, when they see what they believe to be the earliest representatives of bats and, and pterosaurs, the, 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 what they believe are the earliest ones that they can find, they can see that they are present with the, the fully developed ability to fly. They didn't almost fly. They flew. Because God created them that way. Just look at the bat for a second. Not only does the bat have the ability to fly, but it also uses echolocation, the ability to navigate using sound. As, as amazing as it is to be able to fly, echolocation is far more complex. 
Notably, author Michael Crichton challenged evolutionary theory in his sequel to Jurassic Park, The Lost World. He critiqued the claim that, that all of the wonderful complexity of life is there as a result of a series of genetic accidents strung together. He refused, refers to what's known as the coordination problem, explaining that, that animals with, with many elevate, with, that with animals, many elements would have had to have evolved simultaneously. And so he uses this example of echolocation. In echolocation, specifically in bats, he said that they need, in order for echolocation to work, they need the ability to be able to emit the sound. They need the organs to be able to emit sound. They need specialized ears in order to be able to hear the sound. They need a specialized brain in order to be able to understand and interpret the sound. They need the physiological ability to be able to, to reach in and scoop up the insects that they eat. And he said, he's true, he's right in this. He says, if these things did not evolve simultaneously, then there is no survival advantage. They would not have happened. And I hear this quote from, from Crichton. He said, to imagine that all these things happened purely by chance is like imagining that a tornado can hit a junkyard and assemble the parts into a working 747 airplane. It's really that hard to believe, end quote. Now, of course, Crichton doesn't go anywhere near the, the creation account, but my point is that even in the world, many recognize that the evolution, the theory of evolution is irrational. It's irrational. And so atheists deny the creator. As we read in Romans 1, 18 to 23, there's really no such thing as atheists. Only anti-theists. They, they have been given the creation as a testimony to the fact that there is a creator, but they willfully deny him in the hardness of their hearts. They deny the creator and they worship the creation instead. The sixth day, this is the sixth and the final day where God completes his creative acts. And again, this corresponds now to the third day where, where God created the land and created the plants for food. Now he fills the land with creatures. Now this is the most important day of the sixth as you can, you can see by the amount of detail, especially when we get to the creation of man, the, the crescendo of, of God's creative works. Notice that God creates three types of land animals, livestock or, or cattle, Creeping things, which refers to reptiles, and, and the beasts, beasts of the earth, which is wild animals. Now, though they're not explicitly blessed by the birds and the fish, the blessing is implicit because they're given the ability to reproduce according to their kinds. Now, just briefly again, remember what kind means. In creation, there was one dog kind from which we get wolves and coyotes and foxes and dingoes and huskies and terriers and dachshunds. Dinosaurs were also created on this day. Contrary to what you may have been taught in school, dinosaurs are not millions of years old. Now, there's plenty of evidence for this, but just, just one fact is, is, the, is the fact that recently they have discovered soft tissue within the, the bones of dinosaurs. Soft tissue. They found bone cells and blood vessels. Now, there's no way that that, those, that that soft tissue could be millions of years old. God made all of these animals on the sixth day. 
And he saw that it was all good. But as incredible as, as dogs and dinosaurs are, they do nothing to compare to the creation of men and women. God's crowning glory in creation. Look at verses 26 and 27. All of the creation account ascends and leads up to this one act. Again, it's a longer description. Uh, unlike where we've seen previously, the animals come from the land and the fish come from the sea. Here, mankind is seen as the direct creation of God. He says, let there, we see that there's, there's a marked change here from let there be, instead to let us make. So here we're, we're given insight into the divine mind. The, the plural here in, the, in this divine dialogue says, let us, and, and like one of us in, in Genesis 3.22, or let us go down in Genesis 11.7, or, or who will go for us in Isaiah 6.8, these, these terms strongly point to divine plurality. Divine plurality. There is, again, Moses would not yet have understood that there is one God in three persons, but, but Elohim, the, the Hebrew word for God here, is, is plural, it's plural. Elohim is one God, as we now know, in three persons. Kenneth Matthews writes that although the Christian trinity cannot be derived solely from the use of the plural, a plurality within the unity of the Godhead can be derived from this passage. This was the reasoning of the reformers who then appealed to the New Testament for confirmation. The plural indicates that there is a conversation that is going on within the Godhead pointing both to a plurality and a singularity. Again, our image, and, and our is plural, but image is singular. So together, he has one image. Now, I, I, I know that, that will stretch your mind, but we need to be so careful not to try to, to explain away the, the Trinity by, by resorting to, to positions that are false or even heretical. When to let God's word, from, again, from Genesis to Revelation, show us who God is. And we see this in the, in the unfolding revelation that we have in his word that there, there really is one God in three persons. Notice in verse 27, the repetition of created. You can see by the, the structure, it's, Technically, it's a, it's a chiasm. The focus here is on image. It all points to that part of the, of the image. And out of all of the creation that we've talked about, all of the, the glorious animals that God has created, humanity alone, human life alone is said to be created in the image of God. The word that's translated man here is, is, is from the Hebrew Adam. And here, it, this includes, this, this term Adam refers to male and female. We can see that because at the end of verse 27, he says male and female, he created them. And so Adam then includes all of human life, male and female. So in this sense here, Adam can refer to, to all of, of humanity, but as we'll see in the, in the coming weeks, that it also refers individually to the first man, Adam the federal head of the human race, as we see in, in Romans 5, 12 to 14, where, where Adam is the one man through whom sin came into the world. 
But what does it mean here when we, we look at the fact that, that man is created in the image of God? I like this from Anthony Hokema. Man was to mirror God. As a mirror reflects, so man should reflect God. When one looks at a human being, one ought to see in him or her a, a certain reflection of God. Here we think of God's communicable attributes, his, his holiness and his goodness and his love and so on. And, and so, so this idea of the image is to be a reflection, but it also re refers to a representation. Humanity represents God like an ambassador in a foreign country. And, and so here, in this sense, God re or man represents God on earth. Herman Bavink says that, that man does not simply bear or have the image of God, but he is the image of God. So you can see that the, the glory that is, is given to, to man and woman as being in the image of God here in creation. And, and so once again, this, this creation of man and woman gives the lie to the pagan creation myths. The, the glorious creation of man and woman is counter, again, from the Enuma Elish, for example, where, where man is created by Marduk from the blood of the fallen god Kingu as a sentence against him for siding with, with Tiamat. This is, it, it's ridiculous. We have the privilege and the honor of being made in the image of God. So men and women, male and female, are given the, uh, the blessing of being fruitful and multiply again to have many offspring. Vitally important here in Genesis. Vitally important to us. Humanity is, is told here to subdue the earth, to have dominion over the earth, over all the animals. Plants are given for food. So, so human beings were vegetarians until the fall and maybe... Vegetables tasted, I'm sure they tasted better back then. I, I wouldn't be too happy to be a vegetarian, but, but it wasn't until the fall when we began to eat meat. Now, I want to be clear here. I, I'm not an environmentalist. Yeah, I don't put much stock in, in fe the fear tactics of global warming and so on, but, but I do believe that care for the environment is actually a moral issue. Because we're, we're given dominion. And to have dominion means, means to care for it. Doesn't, yes, there's a sense of, of subduing and ruling over it, but it, it's not to destroy it. It's, it's to take care of it. It's to use it, not to plunder it. It's a moral issue. I, again, we, so, many, so much environmentalism is about worshiping the creature rather than the creator. But, but I, I do believe here we have the mandate to care for the planet. But then here we see that God saw it all and it was very good. God made his creation very good, but not for long. Someone asked me the other day, how long? And I said, well, about two chapters. I don't know how long it was before the fall happened, but it wasn't very long. That, that beautiful sun and moon and the stars that we, we enjoy, they're fallen because of our fall. The, the stars, including our own, are dying. 
The, the animals of the skies are fallen as, as, as it's a predator's attack prey. We think of falcons preying on, on, the, on the birds. We see them swooping in and, and killing the, the doves um, around our house. And as, as crows rob nests of, of their, their young baby birds, the, the seas are, are fallen as, as orcas have learned many ways to, to kill seals, even beaching themselves to, to snatch unsuspecting seals. The, the, the beasts are, are fallen as cheetahs run down and devour gazelles as your own house cat kills mice and birds simply because it can. It's all fallen. And I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this. We are fallen too. We have been made in the image of God. But because of the fall of Adam, our first father, that that image of God has been corrupted and perverted. Calvin said the image of God is, is found in, in man's soul. It's, it's not been totally annihilated by the fall, but, but frightfully deformed. That, that cute little baby is a stony-hearted sinner. You, you don't have to teach your kids how, how to lie or to pick on their siblings. It's all because we are fallen. That sin that, that you are still struggling with is there because you are fallen. But the image of God has not been erased. Yes, it's been effaced. It's, it's been damaged. It's been corrupted. But this takes us to the second Adam, to Jesus Christ. Adam as our federal head points us to Christ, the last Adam, who, who was from Acts 2.23 delivered, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He was killed for our sins. Earlier, Psalm 8 was, was read for us. He, this is quoted in Hebrews 2. Please go there with me to Hebrews chapter 2 in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You and I have had the image of God effaced in us. But Jesus Christ perfectly imaged the Father every moment of his life on earth. He lived to love and obey the Father, to fulfill, to fulfill the Father's commands for us. And so in Christ, the image of God is being restored in us. This will finally be fulfilled at our glorification. But as we see that the, this, this 
this creation, as, as beautiful it is, as you see a human being as, as glorious as a, as a human being is in, in God's perfect plan of design. But this is, you're looking at fallen men and women. You're looking at a fallen creation. But in this, we look to Jesus Christ, who never fell, who obeyed for us, so within the plan for God to make men and women in his own image was also the plan to redeem that humanity. With this, I'm reminded, I wish we didn't just sing this at Christmas time, but, but Charles Wesley's hymn, Hark the Herald, Angels Sin, Adam's likeness now efface, stamp thine image in its place. Final Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. This is what God is doing for us in Christ. This is what God has done for us in Christ. This is what God will do for us in Christ. D do you know Christ? Have you turned away from your sin and put your faith in him and him alone for your salvation? If you have, then God's image has been stamped on your life in Christ, not just in the, the way uh, that it was fallen, but as a new creature in Christ, being transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit into the image of Christ as you've been predestined to be. Beloved, this is our God. This is our creator God who did not just create the heavens and the earth out of nothing, but created in you out of a stony heart, a, sto a heart of worship and of love for God by his sovereign power. And that sovereign power will continue for you until that day when you go to be with Christ and to be with him forever and ever and ever. Is this your hope? Is your hope in this God? Let's go to him in prayer.